And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr, and suits so fine they made Sinatra look like a hobo. Is this your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? Really? It's really awful. But I have a lot of things that are on order. You know, credit trouble. Pay more attention to your schoolwork and listen to the radio. You always listen to the radio. It's different. Our lives are ruined already. The Whistler. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, I'll present a classic radio true crime drama on the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. And then we'll try to guess the secret word as Groucho Marx stars on the famous quiz show, You Bet Your Life. With me to help present these classic radio shows is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? I'm happy to be your helper and your Cato and your Tonto <laughs> and whatever you want to call me. Yeah, I like that. You know, uh, you bet your life. We're going to play that in just a few minutes. That was on television a long time. People don't know that it was on radio first and actually simultaneously as the television show. So we'll talk more about that. But it's time now for Orson Welles uh, and the Black Museum. He he appeared on a lot of radio shows, Orson Welles. He was doing movies, and, of course, he was uh, doing uh, his Mercury Theater, and, of course, he became famous because of the War of the Worlds. But in 1951, he came to BBC Radio with a series called The Black Museum. It was a radio crime drama produced by Harry Allen Towers. Orson Welles, who was living in London at the time, was both host and narrator for stories of horror and mystery based on Scotland Yard's collection of murder weapons and various ordinary objects once associated with historical crime cases. Walking through the museum, Wells would pause at one of the exhibits and his description of an artifact served as a device to lead into a tale of terror or a brutal murder. In the weekly closing, Wells concluded with his signature radio phrase, I remain, as always, obediently yours. In the U.S., the series was heard on the Mutual Network starting in 1952. All right, it's time now for a great episode of the Black Museum from 1952 called The Raincoat. This stars Orson Welles. Here's part one of the Black Museum. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum. Here... In a grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, there's a warehouse of homicide. A very strange room where everyday objects, a woman's shoe, a tiny white box, a quilted robe, all are touched by murder. You take this raincoat. It's a familiar object, waterproof cloth, rayon lining... Collar, you can turn up against stormy weather. Here in London, it's called a Macintosh. But you wouldn't wear this raincoat. Odd, isn't it, Inspector? The way it was tucked around that poor woman? And partially burned, as if someone had tried to destroy the evidence. Well, it is evidence, sir. But against whom? I'm not sure yet. But this raincoat, Sergeant, this raincoat will hang someone. You can depend on it. Today... That raincoat can be seen in 
very special position in that very curious room in Scotland Yard, which is known as the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death. The Black Museum. Now, The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Now, here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's museum. It's a museum of murder. Here are the objects of homicide, the weapons, the clues, which at one time and another betrayed killers. They've been collected over a hundred years. And now here they are, shelf upon shelf, in this dim, echoing room. Here lies death, on these shelves, in these glass cases. Just for instance, in this case, simple mallets. Just the sort of thing a suburbanite might use in his garage or his shop working at wood carving on a quiet weekend. As a matter of fact, a suburbanite did use this mallet on a quiet weekend, but not for wood carving. Ah, the raincoat. There we are. Stained, charred, too, around the edges. There's nothing you'd like to handle for very long, but there's a story attached to it. A story that begins in the kind of place you immediately associate with absolute silence. No, not a graveyard, a... A chess club. (laughs) It is silent, isn't it? And into this silence of concentration, there intruded... London City Chess Club. Is Mr. Agard there? Uh, Sorry, sir, I haven't seen him yet. This is the steward of the club. May I take a message? We're expecting him. I see. My name is Champer. My address is 46 Edison Mews East. He knows. We've had some contact by way of Agard's insurance business. Yes, sir. And the message? I want to see him about a policy. Tell him it's rather urgent. I want him at my house tomorrow evening at 7.30 sharp. Very well, sir. I'll tell him as soon as he gets in. Uh, Mr. Agard, uh, sorry to disturb you, sir. Uh, just a moment, Stuart. Um, there. Now, your move. Uh, now, Stuart. A most important telephone message for you, sir. Came in about half an hour ago before you came in. Otherwise, I would never have disturbed you. From a Mr. Chamfer, sir. Chamfer. Strange name. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, perhaps I do know him. Uh, May I have the message, Stuart? That was all. That was all until the next evening. A little bit after seven o'clock on a streetcar, this quiet little insurance salesman, John Agard, said to the conductor of the streetcar... I I beg your pardon. Does this car take me to Edison Mews East? I've never been out there before, you see. Um, I'm not going Yes, you're all right, mister. Take you about 20 minutes from here. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll call it out for you if you like. Oh, yes. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Oh, I I beg your pardon. May I trouble you for the right time, please? It's, uh... 7.35. 7.35. I, uh, I, I am right for Edison Mews East, aren't I? Back one block to the car line. Oh, thank you. 
I, uh, I, I beg your pardon, Constable. Yes, sir? I am looking for a Mr. Chamfer. In Edison Mews East, I, I have an appointment. It's insurance. Uh, do you happen to know the gentleman officer? Oh, I'm afraid not, sir. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And my date was for 7.30. Is, is it much past that now? 7.45, sir. Steeple chimes just struck for three quarter. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I, I am sorry to have troubled you, officer. He seemed a worried little man, John Agard. Upset over his difficulty in finding Mr. Chamfer, and he was still worried, apparently, about an hour later, when his next-door neighbors, Harry and Ethel Benson, saw him coming across the scrap of lawn which separated their houses. Is Agard coming over? Funny. Why is it funny, Harry? They come over very often. That's just it. Martha isn't with him. Funny. Such a devoted couple. Martha had a bad cold today. Perhaps John needs something. Well, no, isn't enough. There he is. Hello, Agard. Spotted you coming across the lawn. Yes. Good evening. You know, I am sorry to bother you. No bother at all. Do you need something for Martha's cold? Oh, you you know about that. No, and and yes. I, I suppose the cold made her forget to unbolt the doors when she went to bed. You mean you can't get into your own house, old man? That's it. Front and back. I can't seem to open either of them. Uh, I, I don't quite know what to do about it. It's not like Martha to forget a thing like that. Does she always bolt the door behind you when she's alone? Oh, at night, yes. Uh, there's only the two of us. I do so rarely go out without her, but tonight it was business. If you'd come across with me, I'd appreciate it so. The three of them crossed the lawn to the Eggert house. Three ordinary people. An insurance agent, a bank clerk, bank clerk's wife. The wife said... Let me try the front door, just for luck. John Eggert said... It won't help her. I've tried several times. The woman tried it. That's a bit strange. I could have sworn. <laughs> it happens lots of times. The lock gets stuck. It's really open and you think it's locked and it just won't work. Well, now now you're here. Won't you stop in for a moment? What with Martha's cold oh, and all the... Oh, she'll like to see you. Come in, please. Well, just for a minute. Uh, Martha? Martha, dear? The Bensons are with me. Martha! Oh, oh my. Oh, oh, oh. Good Lord. <gasps> Martha. Oh. She was dead. Completely, horribly dead. One look. No doctor could help. The woman's head was battered in. She lay before the fireplace, her arms and legs twisted awkwardly like some carelessly dropped wooden figure, and there was blood on the hearth, on the walls too, on the chair, on the rugs. And tucked around the body, as you tuck a blanket around a child, was a raincoat. Let me go over this once more, Mr. Agar. Of course, Inspector. If you think it'll help. Details very often help. You say you left here just before seven. Took a trolley to Edison Mule. But you couldn't find the address or the man who'd called you. Even asked a constable on the beat. Then you returned home to uh, what you found. Uh, that is correct, sir. And your wife was alive when you left home. Oh, of course. Of course. I... Th that was about quarter to seven. The boy who delivers milk says he saw her in the kitchen through the window about that time. The newsboy says he tossed the evening paper at the front door about 6.30 but saw no one. 
Can you corroborate any of those points? Oh, I took the paper with me at a quarter of seven. Martha, uh, Martha was alive when I left. Who could have done this, Inspector? Who? We'll find out. We usually do. May I see the cuffs of your trousers, Mr. Rigor? The cuffs of my... Oh, yes. But whatever for? Thank you. No? No stains of any kind? But do you really think for one minute that I We have... think nothing. Not yet. The uh, raincoat, Mr. Raygard, is it yours? And are there two worn spots at the buttonhole? There are. It's none. When did you see it last? Oh, it was hanging on its usual hook in the hall. I see. Thank you, Mr. Raygard. That's about all for now. <laughs> That's about all for now. But not nearly all. The experts were at work. Somewhere, somehow, the tiny thread which would lead to the heart of the tangle would be found. In a quiet office in Scotland Yard, Inspector Mason discussed the experts' reports with Sergeant Crandall. It couldn't have been robbery. A guard reports nothing missing. A guard reports a lot of things including a mysterious telephone call that took him on a wild goose chase. During which he seems to take good care to leave a clear trail of his own movements. She was seen alive between 6.30 and 6.45. Agard was in the tobacco shop at 7.35. The girl who works there remembers him. He probably took good care she would. Beyond a doubt he did that. But he couldn't have battered her to death after 6.45, cleaned up, destroyed whatever he was wearing, and still be in that shop at 7.35. Or made that trolley car a few minutes after 7. Exactly. Which leaves us, Inspector? With the raincoat. It's odd, isn't it, Inspector? The way it was tucked around that poor woman? And partially burned, as if someone tried to destroy the evidence. Well, it is evidence, sir. But against whom? I'm not sure yet. But this raincoat, Sergeant... This raincoat will hang someone. You can depend on it. That was all they had. The raincoat. Inspector Mason thought about it. It was tucked around her, just as if someone who loved her were taking care of her. There was a thread. It seemed the only thread. Where did it lead? Where could it lead? Where could any of it lead? John Agar, you're under arrest, and you'll be later charged with the murder of your wife, Martha. It is my duty to caution you that anything you may say... Today, that raincoat can be seen in a very special position in that very curious room in Scotland Yard, which is known as the Black Museum. <laughs> Well, they charged John Akert with the murder of his wife, Martha. The evidence seems slight, pretty flimsy, but still, there were strange lapses, contradictions of character. Quiet little insurance salesman responds to a call from a possible client, and suddenly he's talkative, almost garrulous. He establishes himself at definite places at definite times with total strangers, all of whom can be checked quite easily by the police. The possible client is non-existent. And then, of course, there was the raincoat. From the very beginning, the prosecutor for the Crown made it clear that a great deal of his case rested on that raincoat. And if the prisoner did commit this murder for apparently no reason, 
He deserves the full punishment. Much will be made of the quiet life he led with his wife. Much will be made of the fact that no telltale trace of blood was found on him or his clothing. But I say to you, and we hope to prove this to your satisfaction, that this woman could have been beaten to death by someone wearing only the raincoat which we will place in evidence. Now, who, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, could have approached Martha Agard naked save for that raincoat, except her husband, the prisoner, John Agard? Moreover, as you will see, the police officer... There was more of the same, much more. Counsel for the Crown was out to make an impression, no doubt about that. But then, so was counsel for the defence. My colleague has already admitted that no trace of blood was found upon my client, although from the condition of the body and the room, it would seem impossible that the killer could have escaped the touch of it. Then again, there was no time. John Agard could never have committed this crime, performed the necessary ablutions, and been where he was definitely seen between 6.45, when his poor wife was last seen alive by a third party, and 7.5, the moment when my client spoke to the trolley conductor. But far, far more important is the relationship between my client and his poor wife a relationship of love, of understanding, of the perfect companionship of declining years. For that reason alone, I submit my client could never have committed the crime with which he stands charged today. So it began. The legal lines of battle were drawn. Twelve honest men sat in the jury box and gave their whole attention to the parade of witnesses to the arguments, to the cross-examinations. Sergeant Crandall gave evidence in the amount of blood and the places where it was found. Defense counsel cross-examined. It is apparent, Sergeant, that there was an attempt to burn the raincoat, which is now in evidence. Do you agree? Yes, sir. Such an operation would take some time, would it not? Well, I assume so. I can't say for certain. I've never experimented with a raincoat. Very well. You saw the scene of the crime before it was cleaned up, did you not? I did. From what you saw, would you say it was possible for the killer to escape splashes of blood? Well, I doubt it. He would get blood on his legs, his hands, his face, his hair? I expect so. Were any such traces found on my client? Well, none that I know of. There's been a suggestion made that the murderer took a bath before leaving the premises. Did you see any traces of a bath? A wet towel, indications in the bathtub? No, sir. Nothing like that. Mm. One more point, Sergeant. These are the telling points. But the Crown made its own points as well. Inspector Mason, what was your impression of the defendant when you first questioned him? I was rather surprised at him. He showed less emotion than I did. How was this indicated? We sat in the room where the murder had occurred. Mr. Regard smoked and talked. He held his cat on his knees and stroked it quite calmly. At one point, he casually stepped... Such points do impress juries. A clever prosecutor. Quite clever. He called the steward of the chess club. Was Mr. Agard in the club when the telephone call came from this mysterious Mr. Champa? Uh, no, sir. I looked particularly. He was not there. Did you recognize this Champa's voice? I'd never heard it before. I haven't heard it since. Might it have been a disguised voice? It might. It sounded muffled. Very heavy, sort of. Thank you. Your witness. Mr. Stewart, in your observations of Mr. Agard... Have you ever seen him behave as a poor loser? No, sir, never. Has he ever expressed violent opinions, to your knowledge? Mr. Agard, violent? He's the quietest man I've ever known. Hmm. 
Did he ever mention his wife to you? Many times, sir. On what occasions? Usually about nine in the evening. He always worried about leaving her alone too late at night, sir. Oh, very considerate of her he is. Uh, was, sir? Thank you, that's all. That's the first portion of the Black Museum starring Orson Welles with an episode called The Raincoat. And uh, you probably have a Burberry raincoat, too, right, Lisa? I, I wish I did. Yeah, um, you don't? Valentine's Day is around the right. corner. Right. Talk to your husband, Dan, about to... that. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be fine with buying you a $2,000 raincoat yeah, from Burberry. Yeah, no problem. And while he's buying you one, I'm a large. A large? Uh, I have to get it shortened, though, a little bit, because usually large runs a you're little no, long. You're no large. <laughs> <laughs> I'm large. I am a large. I sometimes wear extra large. I need to lose some weight. Don't don't remind me of how chunky I am. Uh, me? I said you're not a large. Yeah, you're trying to tell me I'm fat. I no, know. I, I see, meant... you can say that to me, but see, you're thin, so I can't say No, no, no. What I meant was you need a medium, and you took it medium. as an extra large. No, I, I need you at least... You took it the wrong way. I'm a large, at least. All right, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to tune in to the conclusion to the Black Museum. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. All right, let's get back now to the Black Museum starring Orson Welles in The Raincoat. That was all they had. An elusive case. An impression, really, more than a case. Very difficult to prove, but just as difficult to defend. For instance, the evidence of Harry Benson, who was with John Agard when the body was discovered. And in all the years you've been neighbors, what would you say impressed you most about my client's relationship with his wife? His absolute devotion. Never a quarrel, never a raised voice. They liked the same things. They were perfect for each other. Your witness? Mr. Benson, after the uh, discovery, who called the police? Why, Agar did come to think of it. My wife was very upset. She was sick over what she'd seen, as a matter of fact. Yes, he was the one who thought of the police. He used the telephone quite calmly. Quite calmly. Thank you, Mr. Benson. And naturally, the defense brought John Agard's immediate superior to the stand, the manager of the local branch of the insurance company Agard represented... This man's testimony was double-edged. On direct examination, he stated, We have always had complete faith in Mr. Agard's integrity and character. He carried a large policy on his own life uh, in favor of his wife. She was not insured. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, which is rather complete, Mr. Agard has never been in financial trouble in his life. And on cross-examination, he explained... Yes, I live near Edison Mews East. Mr. Agard has been to my house many times. He knows the way very well. I cannot imagine why he asked for directions. I was at the cinema that evening. My neighbor recognized Mr. Agard when he came to the door of my house. Unfortunately, I was not at home. When John Agard's turn came to take the witness stand, there was little left for him to say. I did not kill her. I had no reason to. I loved her. Opposing counsel summed up. The judge made his charge to the jury. Again and again, 
you have heard the importance of the time element in this case. Could this man, or any man, have committed this crime, removed all traces of it from his person, dressed and been at a trolley car line 20 minutes from his house, in the time between the moment the milk boy saw the victim alive and the moment the conductor saw the defendant on the trolley car? More, there is no evidence to connect the defendant directly with the crime. The case is entirely circumstantial. No motive has been established. They listened, the twelve honest men in the jury box. They retired and they debated. What went on in that jury room is sealed in silence under the honored tradition of the law. Anyway, 40 minutes elapsed. Then the jury re-entered the courtroom. The clerk asked the usual question. Are you agreed upon a verdict? We are. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Prisoner at the bar. Have you anything to say why you should not die according to the law? I am not guilty. I have nothing else to say. You're looking well, John. They treat me well. I had a shock yesterday. The governor of the prison came here. He said... Eight o'clock in the morning, Monday the 16th. Don't worry, John. It will be put over. The appeal? It's being studied. The court won't rule for another month at least. They'll grant a stay of execution. A month. Another month. A month. An extra week after that. Time went on endlessly, it seemed, to John Agard, waiting in his cell in Walton Prison. And at long last, they gave him his own clothes and took him before three judges of the Court of the Criminal Appeal. Handcuffed, he stood there between the bailiff and his own counsel. The voice of the judge seemed very far away. There is indeed a reasonable doubt in this case. We believe there is eminent difficulty and doubt. The case against the appellant was not proved with the certainty necessary to a verdict of guilty. This appeal will be allowed. The prisoner will go free. Yes, he went free. But the raincoat, (laughs) that famous raincoat, can still be found today in its place of very particular honor in that curious room known as the Black Museum. Now here in person is Orson Welles. So, Inspector Mason was wrong, wasn't he? The raincoat didn't hang anybody after all. John Agard went free, and for the first time in the history of English law, a conviction for murder was set aside for reasonable doubt. Now, what happened to John Agard? He lived out his life. Just two years after his release, he died. Some say of loneliness in Liverpool, a broken, weary old man. I've seen his grave in Liverpool. 
and I've seen the raincoat, that famous enigmatic raincoat in its place of particular honor in that strange room in Scotland Yard known as the Black Museum. Now until we meet again in the same place for another story of the same kind, I remain as always obedient for yours. Museum starring Orson Welles is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. And that's the Black Museum starring Orson Welles with a raincoat from 1952. When we come back, we're going to tune into part one of Groucho Marx on You Bet Your Life. Stick around. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Welcome back to the show. I'm Carl Amari and Lisa Wolf is here too. Lisa, how's it going? Enjoying the... Uh the classic radio shows, the six shows we're playing over the four hours. Yes, I'm taking photos of you so we can you post are. it on our Facebook page. Oh, very Mention cool. our Facebook page. We're always uh, happy to have new people come and visit us and like us and tell us what they'd like to hear. Hollywood 360 Radio, uh, search it on Facebook and uh, let us know what you'd like to hear. We love when people uh, communicate with us through our Facebook page and we always get back to everybody. We love to know what you think and... Um, one of the shows that we have uh, had requests for is You Bet Your Life. And I looked, and I don't think we've ever aired one. Maybe once, but I kind of don't think we did. I, I was going to say just that. I don't think we've ever done that. Yeah. You Bet Your Life, when you say that to somebody, they go, Oh, Groucho Marx, the quiz show. I've seen it a million times on television. Well, guess what? It was a radio show, too. And um, Groucho is just as uh, great on, on, on radio as he was on television. And his sidekick on the show was George Fenneman. And on this program, from August 11, 1958, the secret word is picture. This was heard on WNEW in New York. Let's tune into part one now of You Bet Your Life. This is Nightline, the line that's open at the right place at the right moment. And this is Walter O'Keefe. Good evening, good evening. And here's our first Nightline call tonight from Hollywood. Groucho Marx and You Bet Your Life. Hey, George, you tell us, what is tonight's secret word? Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word is picture. P-I-C-T-U-R-E. Really? You bet your life. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Best of Groucho, the summer series of favorite shows taken from You Bet Your Life. The comedy quiz show transcribed from Hollywood and starring Groucho Marx. And here he is, the one, the only... Well, here I am again with a chance for each of our couples to win $2,000. And if they're lucky, maybe somebody will leave here tonight with $10,000. They may win it, but they'd be lucky if they leave here with it. <laughs> we have some young single people, Groucho. You have? Yes, Miss Sharon Harrell and Mr. Ted uh, Detterman. So, folks, you go in, please, and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to You Bet Your Life. Say the secret word, and you each get an extra $50. It's a common word, something you find around the house. Uh, 
Sharon Harrell and Ted Dediman, eh? Thank you. How old are you, Sharon? I'm 17, Groucho. Oh, well, you're only a baby. What is your age? 19, Groucho. Uh, you're a baby, too. <laughs> do you have a job, Ted, or do you go to school, or what do you do? Well, both, Groucho. You go to school and have a job? Yes, sir. I have a part-time job, and I also attend Claremont Men's College. There's a nice college up there at Claremont. It's very fine, Claremont Men's College. Nice and quiet up there, too. Well, at times it's quiet, and at times it isn't. Yeah. I mean, Scripps Women's College is just right across the street. Yeah, though, I know, so. yes. Uh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I say they're right across the Scripps, Scripps College for Women's, right across the street from And us. you go to a men's college, and the women's college is across the street, you say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the most evil laughs I've ever had. Your crosswalk must be worn down about eight feet below street level. Isn't it? You go to college, Sharon? No, sir. I'm a senior at Venice High School. Oh, well, you're pretty close to college, yeah? yeah. You going to Claremont? Uh, gee, I'd sure like to. I'm not trying to talk her into scripts. Yeah. I'd rather go to Claremont. <laughs> oh, we can use a mascot. Well, Ted, do you engage in any extracurricular activities in college, or are you too busy leaping back and forth across the street? <laughs> yes, I do, Groucho. I'm president of the sophomore class here at Claremont Men's College. Oh. How'd you get elected? I mean, what promises did you make that you know you're not going to keep? <laughs> well, uh, one of them was uh, putting lights in our parking lot there. <laughs> didn't go over too big, though. <laughs> You wanted to put lights in a parking lot on a college campus? And you were elected on that? You're lucky you weren't Todd and Feather. Well, you're nice youngsters, and it's been fun talking to you, and I, I hope you two will be very happy together. Even if you never see each other again. All right, let's play your bet your life. Now, you selected royal history. I'm going to ask you some questions. If you miss two in a row, you're out. If you get four in a row right, you win $1,000. Now, remember one answer between you. All right, what country built the Maginot Line? France. La Belle France is right. We have one right, three more right, and you'll have $1,000. What English queen ruled for 60 years? Queen Elizabeth? No, I'm sorry. It's Queen Victoria. Oh. You have one wrong. Don't miss the next one or you're out of the game. In South America, who is known as the Liberator? Um, I believe it was uh, Juan Jose. Juan Jose. No, not Juan. <laughs> I think it was Juan Jose. Oh, you should know this. It's Simone Bolivar. Oh, good. You got two in a row wrong. You're out of the game. Oh, they're out, huh? They're out. Oh, I'm sorry. You missed two in a row. You're all through. Well, you're not going to go away broke. I'm going to ask you one question for $100. Are you ready? Ready. Right. Name one country that was involved in the Russo-Japanese War. Russia. What is it? Japan. Grant's tomb is right. Sorry to win more, but thanks anyway for being with us. You bet your life. Groucho, Mrs. Edna Stromberg, and Mr. Harvey C. Harmelink are waiting to see you, so folks, you can please and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, welcome to You Bet Your Life. Say the sacred word and you win an extra hundred smack olas. It's a common word, something you find around the house. Edna Stromberg and Harvey C. Harmelink, eh? Harvey, what's the C for? 
The C? I never use it, Groucho. Oh. I just sign my name H.C. and let it go at that. What does the C stand for? You going to insist? I, uh, well, I'm going to track well, this uh, down. It's Clarence. <laughs> well, Harvey, I see your point. <laughs> now, what do you want me to call you? Harvey, Hob, or Homolink? Well, Groucho, all of my friends call me Dutch. What sort of work do you do, Judge? Well, I work for the city of San Diego. I'm a fire engineer down there. Oh. What is your job with this fire department? Well, I operate a piece of fire apparatus. To you, that may be just an ordinary pumper truck. Any yeah. of the boys call you Clarence down there? Well, they didn't up until this time, but I think they will now. <laughs> Edna Stromberg, huh? That's right. Where are you from, Edna? I'm from Brookville, Pennsylvania. Why did you leave the old hometown? Did you run away with a saxophone player or something? No, Groucho. I went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to beauty college. And you wanted to become a beauty operator, is that it? That's right. Well, how did it work out? Were you successful? <clears throat> I was a big flop. You were, huh? I was a, a mess for five years. You were a mess for five years? <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's pretty near the record, I think. I didn't think. like people. I think the record up to now for a mess was four and a half years. <laughs> Why didn't you like people? Well, I was very negative, Groucho. You were, huh? Are, are you positive you were negative? Or how long were you negative? Oh, years. 30 years. 30 years you were negative? Well, you don't look that old, huh? And then uh, when did you become positive? If you were negative, you should have gone in the dark room up there and got developed. <laughs> from left field, huh? Three years ago. What's, what, what's, what is that the answer? What is that the answer to? That's, I, I don't know what I asked you, huh? Well, what happened? I took the Dale Carnegie course. You took it where? Here in Los Angeles. Oh, oh that's the fellow who wrote the book on how to win friends and influence people. Huh? That's right. I borrowed that book once, and right off the bat, I made an enemy. <laughs> I did. I forgot to retain the book. <laughs> well, you're a lovely couple, and Edna, I suggest you join the San Diego Fire Department first thing in the morning. <laughs> now, let's see how much money you can win the quiz, because you're going to play your bet your life. You selected the observation quiz. I'll ask you some questions. If you miss two in a row, you're out. If you get four in a row right, you win $1,000. When you're facing it, on what side of a standard sink is the hot water faucet installed? Left, left side. That's right. Have one right, three more right, and you'll have $1,000. How many times? I T-I-N-E-S. Is that the way you pronounce yes. it? Yes. Uh, I thought that was a song. How many times? Does the standard dinner fork have? Four. Four is right. Yes. And you're halfway to $1,000. Two more right and it's yours. How many matches in an ordinary booklet of paper matches? Twenty. That's correct. One more right and you'll have $1,000. When you see a rainbow, what color is on top? Come on, let's have an answer. Red? Red is right. And you've got four in a row, you win $1,000. Oh, you're right. Now look, you won $1,000. You can keep it and quit, or you can come back later at the end of the show and try to double your money. You may even get a crack at $10,000. So you go over there and sit down, and then you sit on Clarence's lap. And no matter what you decide to do, thanks for being on the show. Now talk it over.
That's the first portion of You Bet Your Life, starring Groucho Marx from August 11, 1958. We'll get back to that in just a few moments. Lisa, I want to remind our listeners that we have a website that has 10 free classic radio shows for anyone that is listening to the show. You can go to Hollywood360radio.com and just click to uh, receive 10 of the best classic radio shows of all time. I think people will really enjoy that, including The Who's on First with Abbott and Costello. We have Suspense. We have The Whistler, Inner Sanctum, Gunsmoke, all kinds of great classic radio shows, 10 shows, absolutely free. They're yours. Just go to Hollywood360radio.com. And when you're there, do check out our store. We have thousands and thousands of classic radio shows available via CD and digital download. I want to remind all of our listeners to check out Lisa's website because there's thousands and thousands of pictures from every angle. You can see Lisa from every single angle that a camera can possibly take a picture. That's not a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Just go to lisawolf.com. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. Not bad, right? And if you're a movie director and you're producing a big movie and you want an ingenue, she's here. She can be hired. It, you're gonna have to pay a lot of money. I don't know about the ingenue part, yeah. but um, I'll take the uh, the big movie role. That's right. So check out our website. All right, that concludes uh, hour three of Hollywood 360, and in hour four, we're gonna tune into the conclusion to You Bet Your Life. Plus, we'll hear the Whistler. So stay with us.